Well, I got very interested in the disease of depression. And as a resident, uh, we had patients here at MUSC who were so depressed they couldn't eat. They actually couldn't move. It's a thing called catatonia. And then we could do a thing called electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, where a little bit of electricity over three or four weeks, um, 12 sessions, can take someone like that, and then they're back, and they're totally back. And unlike other brain diseases, where you've had a stroke or Parkinson's, where you can't really get back to the same level of function, they were often back absolutely as well as before. And I said, what the heck is this disease that kind of takes over your body and your brain? So that was the pain point that I saw, that these there were these patients and this disease that we really didn't understand where it was in the brain, what it was. It's almost like an infection. You take an antibiotic and you're back on your game. This is the Innovatively Speaking podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. It's a place where we dive into the origin of the next big things, the who, the why, the how of ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, Dr. Jesse Goodwin. Good morning, Jesse. Good morning, Kevin. Tell me a little bit about our guest today. This seems like an exciting one to me. This is. So our guest today is Dr. Mark George, um, and, I'll, and I'll share that uh, Dr. Mark George is one of the faculty on campus that I think whose reputation actually precedes him. So um, I had an opportunity to travel to Israel uh, on behalf of uh, MUSC years ago as part of a delegation. And while I was there, I uh, actually met with some companies who were asking me if I had ever met Mark. And actually at that time I had not, but that was my first uh, introduction uh, to Mark and all of the really fascinating work that Mark is doing in the field of um, brain function and stimulation. Um, and so it is probably the only time in my tenure here that I've been internationally uh, located with people asking me uh, had I had a chance to meet who they considered a superstar on our campus. So um, I think that might be the best way to, to sum up uh, Mark is his reputation precedes him because he's extraordinary. Fantastic. Well, let's dive right in. Dr. Mark George, welcome to the MUSC Podcast Studios. Thank you. I'm um, absolutely pleased to be here. So, Mark, uh, to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about the field of research that you do here at MUSC? So, uh, I'm a native South Carolinian, born in Columbia, and uh, went to medical school here. I wanted to do international medicine and went to Haiti and realized that it was really not suited for me and came back and didn't know what to do. I've always been interested in the brain and behavior. And so um, in medicine, there are two, two areas that deal with the brain, neurology and psychiatry. And I thought they were both good, uh, but both incomplete. So I did residencies in both. And uh, it doesn't didn't take long, still doesn't take very long when you're learning how to practice medicine about the brain where you run up against where our knowledge stops and it's just tradition. We just don't know. You know, the brain is the last frontier. And so I started and I, back then uh, we were having um, new ways of imaging the brain, a thing called CT scans and then PET scans. And so I got very interested in, in taking pictures and the best place to take pictures was in London, England. And so I went there for a year to do a research fellowship. And then after that, the NIH in Bethesda. And so I started my career really as a brain scientist, clinical scientist, taking pictures. I was a photographer. 
And my my main question was, what part of the brain is involved in emotion? When I'm sad or angry or anxious, what's going on in there? And are there specific spots? And if so, can we understand those? And then can we use that information to come up with new treatments? So it's a real simple question. And I just was very lucky to be clinically trained and then at research spots where I could do some of the first really basic science. And then one of those... Um, new technologies that I stumbled on turned out to be a, a blockbuster treatment. So, and yeah, so that's kind of a nutshell of what I do. So brain imaging initially, but now more brain stimulation uh, geared towards coming up with um, treatments. So I like on this podcast to talk a lot about pain points. That's where we like to start each of these episodes because to me, uh, innovation really at its its heart is a creative solution to a pain point. And so as you're thinking about what attracted you to the field, can you speak a little bit about the pain points that you thought um, patients who were maybe exhibiting symptoms were um, experiencing or, or what was the actual pain point that sort of drove you to be interested in advancing this field? Well, I got very interested in the disease of depression. And as a resident, uh, we had patients here at MUSC who were so depressed they couldn't eat. They actually couldn't move. It's a thing called catatonia. And then we could do a thing called electro electroconvulsive therapy or ECT where a little bit of electricity over uh, three or four weeks, um, 12 sessions can take someone like that and then they're back and they're totally back. And unlike other brain diseases where you've had a stroke or Parkinson's where you can't really get back to the same level of function, they were often back absolutely as well as before. And I said, what the heck is this disease that kind of takes over your body and your brain and it's there and then if, with a little bit of stimulation in the right spots, you can bring people back so that was the pain point that I saw, that these there were these patients and this disease that we really didn't understand where it was in the brain, what it was. It's almost like an infection. You take an antibiotic and you're back on your game. And um, that was the pain point that I, I said, well, you know, what is it? How do we reset with electricity? And... Um, so how did you parlay that into the transcranial approach that I think you're also pretty famous for? Yeah. So I was in London uh, doing these studies where we'd put people in the scanner and get them terribly sad and see what parts of the brain turned on or off. And then we would do the same thing with depressed patients. So we were coming up with kind of a circuit of what parts of the brain were involved in mood regulation. So that was my imaging work. And then one day in an elevator in London, I was there and nobody talks in an elevator in London, or at least they didn't. It was just not proper. And this uh, uh, subject turned over, turned to me and says, hey, doc, you'll never believe what happened. This guy put a magnet on my head and made my thumb twitch. And I said, oh, really? And, uh, and then I said, what floor was that? And he said, eight. So we went down to the ground floor. He got off. I punched eight. And I went up and kind of poked my way around. And sure enough, I walked into a lab of... Um, a guy who is now a great colleague and friend, but he had a TMS machine, a transcranial magnetic machine, where you could put an electromagnet on the surface of the brain and create a powerful magnetic field which would go into the brain and induce electricity to flow. So they were actually electrically stimulating the brain non-invasively. And if you do that over the motor area, you can make your thumb twitch. And so he was doing that, investigating motor system. If you have a weak thumb, is the damage in the thumb or in your shoulder or in your neck or in your brain. So you could use it to investigate motor system, and that's what they were doing. 
And I'll never forget, I just turned to him while he was doing that. I said, what would happen if you moved that thing forward? And I pointed to the spot over the over your eyes where we were beginning to think that that was part of the mood regulation circuit. And he looked up at me and says, I don't know, but why would you ever want to? And so um, that was when I came up with the idea that we might be able to stimulate that part of the brain non-invasively uh, and not causing a seizure, and that over time we might be able to rehab that circuit and get people undepressed. And um, it does. <laughs> so I spent 15, 20 years um, getting it onto market, doing the discovery science, and um, now it's a... Uh, and just this weekend I was driving from Charleston up to... Uh, up to the mountains, and I went through Columbia, and right there at that dysfunction junction of I-26 and everything, there's a huge billboard. Don't suffer from depression anymore. And there's a, a chain of TMS clinics, and I said, wow, it's back to my hometown now. <laughs> I think that's actually really, truly fantastic. And I think as your science has really taken off and, and this has become accepted and, and I know it's FDA approved for depression now, this this approach. Um, the other types of um, indications that it could be used for has also expanded. So can you talk a little bit about the expanded use of, of TMS um, outside of depression? What else uh, it's got potential for or being studied for or used clinically for? Yeah, well, the revolution is that we now understand the brain is is all these circuits and different parts of the brain do things. And instead of buttons, it's actually circuits, things that are connected. And then the connection is actually what creates healthy behavior. And and so a lot of diseases are now being understood as diseases of circuits. And so uh, Parkinson's disease, the tremor, I mean, it's a circuit that's wrong. And um, in psychiatry, obsessive compulsive disorder, addictions, um, you name it, almost all of our major psychiatric disorders are we're now un, unraveling the circuits and so whenever we have a circuit that seems pretty good we can use TMS non-invasively to go in and push and pull and then say how would we do this to come up with a new treatment and in the last couple of years we've gotten FDA approval for OCD we've gotten FDA approval for smoking cessation uh, we're close to getting it for pain and for post-traumatic stress disorder so it's it's just um, discovery science in a nice way where we're taking imaging knowledge and then using this new tool coming up with therapies. There are some brain diseases where we don't really understand the circuit still. The schizophrenias are like that. Maybe autism is like that. And so those we're not able to get at with TMS yet because we really just don't know where to put it. Uh, we don't know the circuit yet. But it's an exciting time where almost... Um, you know, every couple of months there's a new announcement and these things are out there helping people. Yeah, I think it's extremely exciting just to see how the field is sort of blossoming and taking off and, and the sky's somewhat the limit in terms of, as you said, once we can unravel these brain circuitry is what we're going to be able to um, to treat using this approach. So with that, can you describe a little bit about what that treatment paradigm actually looks like for these patients that come in with any one of these disorders? What does a TMS treatment look like when they come in? Well, this is a great question because this is all about innovation. And so I can tell you how we started and how I made some educated guesses that were good enough to get it approved, but were really not the final answer. And I knew they weren't the final answer then. But So when I started, um, we, we would do a session. So you'd sit in a chair, the 
coil would turn on and off over about 20 minutes and we'd give maybe 3,000 pulses, just stimulating the brain. I think of it like going to the gym and lifting, curling, you know, weights. You're just exercising that part. So we would do that. And um, I, I just chose a pattern of doing that once a day, every day with weekends off. And weekends were off just because I, I couldn't come in and do all the treatments all the time. <laughs> and uh, and we started with just two or three weeks of treatment, and then we realized that wasn't sufficient, and we uh, ended up doing it six weeks, and that was what we locked in to get um, FDA approval. And the frequency of stimulation was 10 hertz, so ba 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 and then on and off. And I chose 10 because of some animal studies, and it seemed to make some sense, but it really was just a base 10 number. Now, that's what got FDA approved back in 2000 and eight, but we've uh, now been refining all of those and challenging those appropriately. And so there have been a couple of advances. One is a, a pattern of stimulation called theta bursting, and it sounds like this. It goes, and say, where did that come from? Well, that's the noise that if you stick a wire into the hippocampus and listen to human nerve cells talking to each other, that's how nerve cells communicate. And so not me, somebody else said, wow, if that's how the brain talks, why don't we talk back to it in its own language? And so that's called theta bursting. And it seems to be a much more efficient way to use TMS to change brain activity. And so with that, we're able to do, um, we're a lot more efficient. So now you can do theta bursting, which as opposed to 20 minutes a session can be only five minutes a session. And then so people said, wow, people have driven two hours to come for their five-minute session. What if we did multiple sessions in a day? And so one of my students here who's now out at Stanford just recently published an exciting study where you bring people in and you do 10 treatments a day for five days straight, and that's it. And he got 90% remission with that new protocol, and that was published and is likely to get FDA approval in the next month or so. So people are reevaluating how we do it. The old pattern of once a day uh, with weekends off for six weeks was a big time commitment, especially if you lived far from a TMS uh, chair. Um, now with uh, just one week, everybody can take a week off for vacation. And so the idea of going somewhere, taking a week off and getting your depression dealt with is really exciting in terms of opening up new possibilities for patients. And these treatments are permanently put in remission? Oh, or? that's the thing. We don't talk about cures yet with depression. What we do is if you do one of these paradigms uh, and you've got depression and you've tried and failed other medicines, uh, it's, it's about a rule of thirds. One third of people will get remission. That is, there's, their depression symptoms are totally gone, at least temporarily. Another third won't get remission. They'll still have some depression symptoms, but their symptoms are at least cut in half. And then unfortunately, in one third, it doesn't work. Now, how long do you go afterwards? Uh, again, another rule of thirds. One third of people who get well with TMS never need TMS again. They may still need talking therapy, occasionally medicines, but we've strengthened their brain so that their depression is easier to deal with. Another third will need a treatment within two years, but the good news is they just come back, they do the same thing again, it always works again, uh, and then they may go another two years or forever. Some people will relapse within a couple of months, and so then they also re-respond when we bring them back. But then we start talking about doing maintenance treatment where we do a treatment a week, treatment every other week. And we've got several patients over at the VA where I practice where we just 
do a treatment every whatever they're we, we kind of accordion out how long it can go before they need a, a, a maintenance treatment and I've had people doing that for years um, and doing well. And you said strengthen the brain. Is it actually strengthening the circuits? I mean, uh, it's building them up? What's that's, happening That's in there? where the neuroscience is so interesting. And the answer is we are strengthening the brain. And so what does that mean, the brain strengths? Well, you're talking about connections between different nerve cells in that circuit. And you can measure that either by looking at the cells themselves, the white matter that surrounds a neuron, and is there more white matter or is the brain bigger? And TMS actually makes those circuits bigger. What we really think is happening is how a nerve cell communicates with another nerve cell is they have these little buttons that connect, and those are called synapses, and you can count the number of synapses, and those actually increase with TMS in that circuit that's functioning. So, so we are actually the hypothesis that I had way back then, you know, if you did that, could you get people, could you strengthen that circuit? Um, it's true. We are doing that by actually causing, and, and this is what the brain does naturally. When I'm learning a new thing, that circuit that embodies the, the new knowledge actually has more synapses that connect uh, and allow me to do that behavior. So, yeah, it does that. So, one of the exciting new innovations is, uh, well, what is the what's the actual mechanism by which synapses form and are there medicines that we could give with TMS that might boost that? And sure enough, another former student, Josh Brown, who's now up at Brown uh, University, um, is doing that. He's giving a medicine that we know either uh, promotes or blocks synaptic plasticity and shows that TMS with the, with the growth, the fertilizer that does exactly that, it's a lot more powerful. And if you block it, TMS doesn't work. So we're starting to understand not only the mechanism, but the adjunctive pharmacology. And the reason that's important is, I said a third of people it doesn't work in. So you might want to actually give those people this kind of um, medication that would boost it. So uh, with that latter sort of approach, Mark, where you might be able to give a boost with some pharmacotherapy, um, would that have a role in a potential treatment for things like Alzheimer's where you're starting to uh, see some changes in the synapses of the brain um, and perhaps stave off some of those side effects? Have you started to look at that or are people looking at that? So in terms of TMS for Alzheimer's, it's been a little bit disappointing. a lot of patients with Alzheimer's are depressed, and sometimes depression is one of the first symptoms of Alzheimer's. And I always say that um, we we have a hammer called TMS, and the nail is depression, and we can treat depression whatever it is and wherever it occurs. So we can treat the depression of Alzheimer's, and often people's cognition will improve and they'll get back. But we really haven't figured out a way of using TMS to fundamentally get at the memory and the long-term changes in the brain. There's a lot of research on about doing that, and, and what you're talking about, how we actually combine it with with pharmacology might be the answer, but right now, that's one of the areas that it's just harder than the luck that I had with depression, and I, I think it's solvable and will be a treatment. We just have to find that circuit and then the pattern of stimulation and then potentially the adjunctive pharmacology to make it work. Uh, so, Mark, I recently saw a picture of you and some colleagues in a space flight simulator. Um, so, you know, thinking of this as space as the next frontier, can you describe, you know, what the goal for that particular study was and what you were doing in a space flight simulator, all wearing interesting-looking head gadgets? <laughs> yeah, this was a real bit of fun. So I, I've been so blessed in my career with 
amazing colleagues, and the amazing colleague here is Dr. Donna Roberts, who was a NASA engineer who came to medical school. I think in her freshman year, she knocked on my door, and she's been working ever since, and then be, you know, she became a, a radiologist, but has always been interested in space and has been taking pictures of astronauts before and after they come back from floating. Uh, but she and I have been trying to get NASA interested in using brain stimulation as a way to undo the effects of weightlessness. And then also the idea that um, when we go to Mars, uh, I think we're going to be able to solve all the payload issues and communications, all the technology stuff you can solve. But the big unknown is um, actually the human factor of depression in the crew. And NASA now understands that you can't just choose the right stuff. There's no person who won't get depressed, and you can't select the few um, chosen individuals. That's just not possible. So how are you going to treat the depression that will occur on Mars? Well, you could send up a whole bunch of Prozac, but not everybody responds to Prozac, and it goes bad after a year. So you'd have to send up a whole bunch of five or six different medicines. They'd all be bad after a year. You'd have to send a second payload. What if that payload failed? Um, so solving it with pills, what is the bioavailability of pills in weightlessness? So pills are complicated, but if they have a solar panel and electricity, they, have, they could have TMS. So they've been very interested in whether you could use TMS on spaceships or in Mars to treat the depression that we know will occur and other brain diseases that that might. And so one of the first questions is, can you do TMS when someone's floating? And so we wrote a grant to ask that question and it got funded and we went down and got on what's affectionately known as the Vomit Comet, uh, which is this plane where you go up. It's just a regular plane, a big cargo plane, but it goes up and you fly in parabolas where you're going along, you go up, and then as you tip over and fall, you're floating. So you have 30 seconds of weightlessness. And then they do that over and over about two hours. So you get a, over that time, you know, 20 minutes of, of weightlessness time. And so we propose to do TMS. Actually, going back to that first time I saw the thumb twitch, do that exactly while you're floating and to see whether the amount of electricity needed would change when you're floating versus when you're sitting on the tarmac or back to the tarmac. And sure enough, it takes about 10, 15% less electricity to stimulate your brain when you're floating. Now, we're not sure. We think maybe the brain kind of rises up and gets a little closer to the coil when you're floating. That's probably, that's our major explanation. But we showed that you can do it and uh, and that there's some changes in, in physiology that you need to know. And so hopefully... Um, We'll be able to do more like that. And at some point when we're on Mars, there'll be a TMS device there. Um, so think about how different the outcome for the Martian movie would have been if only Mark Watney was armed with TMS, including his botany skills. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't get, he got a little depressed, but he was able to work through it in that movie. But you can imagine it going the other way where he just got catatonic and gave up yeah. or psychotic and gave up and, uh, that, that's unfortunately not, a, not an uncommon outcome in situations like that. So, yeah, the, you, you don't want to have that possibility, right? Yeah. So, Mark, based, it sounds like you're 
the field of study is really just taking off and going in all of these fantastic directions, but science is science. And so what are still the current stumbling blocks that you, that you grapple with or that keeps you up at night that you're thinking about, how am I going to solve that tomorrow in mm. the lab? Well, the thing that I worry about the most is not the technology. Oh my gosh, there's so much there and it just gets discovered and it's there. Um, the rate limiting step for how well and quickly these things will translate into patients really is um, or, or what I call translational neuroscientists. So people who can uh, do the discovery trials where you have an idea and it's a good idea, but how do you really test it in people with a disease and then figure out whether it's working or not? And that's, it takes a complicated skill set because you have to be, be kind of clinically trained and you also have to understand the science and you have to be able to put those things together. And often that's done in teams and that's great, uh, but everybody in the team needs to be a translational kind of uh, discovery scientist. And that's the rate limiting step that I see. There are not that many people. It's a little bit easier, better, higher paying, different approach to just treat patients. And, uh, and then if you just do science and discovery science, the technology, that's almost easier. And what I worry about is, um, do we have enough of these translational neuroscientists uh, who are going to be able to to do the very hard work. And looking back, you see all the successes. I could spend a lot of time about all the failed trials. <laughs> and it's discouraging when, when that happens. And so my worry is that we don't have enough translational neuroscientists who can, can move these things through. And that's why I'm so blessed to be here at MUSC in a place that allows us to do that and promotes and grows the next generation. So that's my worry. I don't think the technology is going to be a problem. And I think these will become even more common in our world, uh, how fast they get adopted is really that issue of how many people do we have to do the work. I'm grateful for all the patients who partner with us. Everything that we've talked about here involved not just me as a scientist, but as somebody taking a risk saying, oh yeah, okay, this sounds a little crazy, but I'll, I'll work with you. And um, I'm always grateful for those people. Well, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation, and I learn so much every time I talk to you about just all of the amazing things that you've accomplished over the course of your career and where the field is still coming, the next frontier, uh, no pun intended. Um, and so thank you for your time, and thank you for joining us here in the podcast studio. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Innovatively Speaking Podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu slash innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.